Do we have any, any groupies here today? Any groupies? What's a groupie? A groupie is a group of people that follow famous people. Or it could necessarily, wouldn't have to necessarily be a famous person. It could be uh, or nationally famous. It could be locally famous. You could have a, a young man that uh, ends up with a lot of uh, young lady groupies <laughs> that follow him around campus at school, right? right? So it's, it's people that are attracted to somebody because of their influence, because of their, their looks, because of their power, their money. Groupies. We all know what groupies are. Typically, we, we look at groupies as teenage girls following the pop band, and they're screaming on the, at the top of their lungs when the band walks out or they sing. Groupies. Well, here, here's a definition of groupie. The, the term groupie is a slang word that refers to a fan of a particular musical group who follows a band around while they're on tour, who attends as many of their public appearances as possible with the hope of meeting them. Now, if you remember from last week, we had a crowd of a bunch of groupies, didn't we? Jesus fed the 5,000. Actually, we know that it was only 5,000 men that were counted, but it would have probably been anywhere, counting women and children, 10 to 15, maybe 20,000 people that he fed. And there was, he only used five loaves and two fish. And he multiplied the fish miraculously and fed them lunch that day. There were 12 basketfuls of fragments left over. And it says that we looked at last week, it said that they were ready to make him king. They were ready to crown him king because not only did they see the miracle of the feeding of the multitudes, but now they were like, wait a minute, this guy certainly and surely is the king that we've been looking for, the Messiah that we've been looking for. And not only is he going to rule and reign us, but he's going to feed us. This is the best of both worlds. We're going to have a king that's going to liberate us from Roman authority and power, but he's also going to feed us. Let's make this guy king. And, And we heard last week, Jesus said no. He withdrew himself and he told his disciples, get into the boat, go into the boat now. And they obeyed and we talked about how the winds and the waves picked up. The winds and the waves picked up and Jesus walked out on the water and they, call, and, and, and they thought it was a ghost and they called out and Peter said, if it's you, Lord, bid me to come. We talked about the storms of life that we walk through. When we're going through storms of life, we, we need to realize and remember that Christ is with us. He's walking alongside of us. He's waiting for us to call out to him. And so this is kind of where we've been. So now nightfall comes and, and everyone goes to sleep. And Jesus and his disciples are on the other sp- side of the sea. They made it there to the other side. Jesus calmed the storm and they got there. And we're going to pick up in John 6, starting in verse 22, and we're going to go all the way through verse 40. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus is going to begin to have a conversation with the groupies that are following Jesus to the other side. He's going to have a conversation with them. And really, over the next two weeks, two things are going to happen. In this message, this first message, we're going to see that Jesus is going to dissect and is going to be like a skilled surgeon. He's going to expose and cut through the superficiality of the hearts of the people that are these groupies that are following him. He's going to expose the superficiality of their belief in him and their following of him. He's going to point to the reality that he is the bread of life, that he is truly the only one that can satisfy them. Though they're looking for earthly satisfaction in this conversation, he's going to be steering them and guiding them to be able to see that he is the only one that can truly satisfy the deepest needs that they have in their life. And then next week, we're going to look at the, the conclusion of the conversation. Jesus is going to talk about the cost of discipleship. He's going, to, he's going to show these people that are dialoguing with him with their mixed motives. He's going to tell them, hey, I'm the one that you need. 
but it's going to cost you something. There's going to be a sacrifice. It's not just, it's not just easy believism. He's going to say the phrase, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And we're going to see next week that many that, that were following him are going to say, okay, this is too much. We're going to leave. So we're going to look at that next week. But today, we're going to see this dissection by a skilled surgeon, the most skilled surgeon of all time, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to dissect the hearts and the minds of these groupies that are following him. And if I was to say what the main point of this message is, it, it would be this in one sentence. The main point would be this. Jesus alone truly satisfies. And all other approaches to find fulfillment are superficial and temporary. Jesus alone truly satisfies. And all other approaches to fulfillment in us are truly temporary and superficial. Superficial and temporary. This is the heart of what we're going to see as Jesus this skilled super surgeon dissects the heart to the crowd, this crowd of groupies. So the first thing we're going to see is going to be broken down this section into three main points. And here's the first point we're going to look at here this morning. Jesus exposes the superficiality of false worship. The surgeon exposes. Let's look at the text. John 6, we'll start in verse 22. On the next day, on the next day, right? The day after he fed, the day after Jesus and his disciples get into the boat and go to the other side, the day after the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away all alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the, into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So it looks good, doesn't it? They wake up and they're like, where's Jesus? And they're looking and they're looking across the other side of the sea. And they see that there's some boats that were here the morning before. Now they're over there. They recognize Jesus is not here. And they assume he must be over there. And they get in the boats and they seek Jesus. They wake up seeking Jesus. It looks good. They wake up hungry for breakfast and they're seeking Jesus. And so on, on the first glance, you could be like, this is this crowd seeking Jesus. But when they find Jesus, they get to the other side. What does Jesus say in response to their seeking of him? Look, look back at the text, verse 25. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So it looks on, on the surface that these are seekers that are just wanting to be with Jesus. And, and they ask him a question, very simple question. When did you get here? And, it, you know, if we were asked that question, if we crossed a sea, we crossed a three or four mile journey across a small sea in a boat, and we got to the, to the other side, and somebody asked us, how did you get there? What would we say? We'd say, well, I got in the boat, and I, I set my sail, and I, I, I rowed, and we, you know, you would talk about the practical things that you did when you got into the boat and how you got over there, but Jesus is not like us. He's not just going to give them the facts. What he would have said was, okay, I'll tell you how I got to the other part of the sea. I, I, I sent my disciples on ahead of, of, of me, and I went to the mountain to pray. Then I came down, and I walked out onto the water, onto the sea, and, I, and they called out to me, and, and, and he would have given the facts of what he did, but he didn't do that when they asked him, how did you get here? What did he say? He went straight to their heart. 
he went straight to dissecting. He says, he answered them. This is his answer. Truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because of the sign of the feeding of the multitudes, but because you ate your fill. Because you ate your fill. Isn't that amazing? He cuts straight to the heart. His answer to their question is, truly, truly, I say to you. Truly, truly, I say to you. Truly, truly, that phrase, those two words, truly, truly, is the phrase, amen, amen. And it means solemn truth. This is a solemn truth. So in essence, what Jesus is saying when he's answering their seemingly simple question, how did you get here? He says, amen, amen. This is a solemn truth. Truly, truly, I'm going to tell you the truth about yourself. This is what Jesus is saying. You're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you got a meal. You're not seeking me because the sign of the feeding convinced you about me and who I am. But you are seeking me because you want me to feed you another meal. Socialism 101. Right there. Right He's cutting to the heart. He's saying, you're here because, hey, I'm going to give you a meal again. Truly, truly, this is who you are. And I just want to say this. Only God can do that. Only God can expose the heart of man. His word does it. When his word is preached, it, it exposes, it cuts. Right? The book of Hebrews says that about the word of God. It's sharper than your two-edged sword. It, it, it pierces, it cuts, it divides. Jesus is exposing the reality of their heart, the superficiality of their seeking the crowd. Listen, the crowd is not seeking Jesus to worship him, but are in actuality seeking Jesus because they worship themselves. You guys see that? He's exposing that in them. They're not seeking him because they want to worship him because the sign of the feeding of the multitudes convinced them about his deity. They're seeking him because they worship themselves. They, they want something for themselves. Shallow, earthly reasons instead of profound, spiritual reasons. They're seeking not for profound, spiritual reasons. They're seeking for shallow, earthly reasons. Shallow, shallow. We see an example of shallow belief in Matthew 13. So, you know, this is not just one, one place here that we see this in Scripture. We see it in many places. I could take you many other places to see this. But I think one is a parable that Jesus told in Matthew 13. He's telling this to his disciples. He tells this parable. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, he doesn't understand it. The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown among, along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a little while. And when tribulation and persecution arise because of the word, immediately he falls away, shallow, superficial. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and it proves unfruitful, shallow, faith shallow superficial faith we receive it with gladness jesus you fed us this is really good and we're following you not because there's a depth of belief or understanding in our heart of who you are but man that meal was really good it was the best fish i ever ate that bread was so amazing and fresh and crispy i don't know how you did it right you gave me a meal and jesus said that that's why they were seeking him it's not we're not we're not reading into the text by saying that jesus said it didn't he he said, he said, you're not seeking me because you believe. You're seeking me because your bellies were filled. I love what the preaching the word commentary says about this. 
says crowds wildly pursued Jesus because he had supplied them with the material things of life. They liked the idea of a fish maker and a bread maker, someone who could give them the material things they wanted. But they failed to take a step farther and realize that a man who could miraculously supply bread was also the one who could meet the deep spiritual need of their lives. They missed it. And the skilled surgeon that Jesus is, he cut straight to the heart. They were trying to have a question about how you got here, Lord. How did you get here, Rabbi? Teacher, how did you get here? You're superficial. You're superficial. I'm not going to tell you how I got here. You and even, what if I told you I walked on water? Would that change your mind? No, he, he knew that no matter the sign that he told them or that he did, they had superficial belief in him. Isn't that amazing? What? Think about that. Maybe he could have started telling them about, hey, by the way, I walked on water to get here. What do you think about that? But he didn't. He said, you're superficial. You're seeking me, not because you believe in me, but because I filled your belly. I was gone for seven days a couple weeks ago. I went on a trip. You guys knew about that, right? I went on a retreat for seven for seven nights, excuse me, seven nights, eight days. And anytime I go on a long extended trip, I tell my kids, I'm going to buy you a present while I'm gone. And so especially those two youngest. Now the oldest, they expect a present too. Theirs will happen to be a little bit more expensive than the younger ones, but the little ones for sure, my eight-year-old Reagan, my four-year-old Lincoln, they, they expect me to have a present and they're excited about it. And it's already hard for me to be away and so I want it to be special when I get back. And so, I, you know, I'm, they're, they're waiting. They're anticipating. And so, so I'm gone for seven nights. I drive on the eighth day. I, I drive for 12 hours from Louisville, Kentucky to Houma, Louisiana. It was a long day, a long trip. I'm getting to the driveway. I'm coming up the driveway. And there's my wife and my four-year-old Lincoln. And it's just so amazing. It's special. I'm looking. Oh, they love me. They're celebrating me and my son Lincoln, he's jumping up and down like this. Daddy's home. And so I pull up and I open the door. I'm expecting this big, huge hug and this, and and I open the door. And the first thing out of Lincoln's mouth is, where's my present? I thought, wait a minute, did you miss me? And he told me, no. <laughs> you can ask Estelle, that's what he said. Every, all, all the nights I was gone, I would ask him, do you miss me? No. <laughs> he only wanted his present. So I said, well, do you love me? At least he told me yes. But he wanted something from me. You guys see the picture there? Right? Do you love me? And so the question we'd ask ourselves is, do we, do, do we love him? Do we love him or are we only interested in the presence he can buy for us? So this applies to our lives so clearly in this text. Before we think we're, we're not like those, those people, those, those groupies, I think even as Christians we can tend to fall into the groupie category if we're not careful. So this really applies to us is that, is that we need to be careful about the view that we have of God and how that view is shaped. So there could be people that you're listening to that are shaping the, the, the view of God in a way that's not biblically accurate. So, so the way we apply this is, is this. Stop listening to preachers or messages or podcasts or reading books that turn God into simply a bread and a fish maker that died and rose so we could have our bellies filled and our earthly problems solved. You don't need a steady diet of that in your life. You got to guard and protect against that reality that this is all that God came to do, that he died He atoned for our sins so that our earthly problems could be solved. 
So why does that matter? Well, here's why it matters. It matters because when the cupboard is bare and the gas prices are high, and the earthly provision is not what we want it to be, then Jesus no longer becomes useful to us. Right? And you hear people say something like this, religion isn't working for me anymore. That's a groupie who followed Jesus because uh, so far so good, so far so good, I've prayed and I've received, I've prayed and I've received, I've prayed and I've received, and it's working out pretty good. I prayed and I got healed, I prayed and I got provided for, it's working out good. And then inflation hits, and then the gas prices go up, and then, and then we run out of baby formula, and then, and then I'm praying and, and nothing's changing, and then, well, religion just really didn't work out for me very well. That's a groupie versus, versus this. But if we rightly understand That Jesus died so we can be forgiven and justified and worship him forever. Then no amount of earthly lack will stop us from living our lives for the glory of his name. No amount of earthly lack. Truly, truly, you're not seeking me because you believe in me. You're seeking me because you want something from me. And our God is a giver of great gifts, the primary one being the salvation of our souls. And he will abundantly provide for us. But, but, but the ultimate provision for us is eternal life. And if I never have the car I want, the house I want, if, if I've if I got to pay a little bit more money for gas, a lot more money for gas, I'm still going to live for the glory of your name. If I don't get the healing From walking through the diagnosis, God, I'm going to live for your glory because you are worthy of my worship and my praise no matter the circumstance, no matter the storm we walk through like we talked about last week. I'm not here for what you can do for me. I'm here because of who you are. Jesus exposes the superficiality of their false seeking or their false worship. What do we see next? Let's continue on in the text. The surgeon's going to continue cutting. His scalpel is sharp. He's going to cut here. Let's look back at the text. John 6, picking up in verse 27, Jesus kind of changes the subject here. He's guiding them along here. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, verse 27, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus now switches the focus of the conversation to expose another tendency that people have when pursuing Christ. And that tendency is work. It's work. It's a tendency that's all in all of us. Jesus is telling this crowd, don't work for the food that perishes. So he's telling the crowd that is following him for superficial reasons. He's saying, you're only following me or working to obtain earthly things from me. And earthly things will perish. So we've been talking about. If our relationship with God is based upon earthly perishable things only, then when those perishable things disappear, we have nothing left in our relationship. So what what do they say when Jesus uses the word work? Again, I think he's guiding him in in, in this conversation, the whole conversation. When he uses the word work, he says, don't work for the food that perishes. What is their response to that statement? This is what they say in response to the word work. The crowd says, then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do? Remember rich young ruler? What must we 
do? What must I do? You know what? This is the summary. In this one response, we have the summary picture of every approach to righteousness with God apart from Christ. The summary statement, summary question. What do I need to do? What must I do? It's called ladder climbing religion. Or another way to phrase it, you could call it works-based maintenance program. Right? Ladder climbing religion. I got to climb up the ladder to be good enough to prove to God that I'm righteous enough to, to be in his presence and to earn heaven. Or I'm a Christian, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, I believe in his once for all sacrifice for sins, but I have bought into this idea of a works-based maintenance program for my righteousness. I got to work hard to maintain my state of righteousness. What must I do? What's Jesus' answer to the question, what must I do? Look, Look back to the text. He answered, this is the work of God that you, don't, that you believe in him who he sent. This is the work. The work is not a work. The work is faith. The work is faith. It's almost too good to be true. You're telling me what must I do is just to believe. He's getting them to understand that this is the point of this conversation with them. He wants them to see who he is and why he came and why he did the miracle so that they could understand his nature, his deity, so that they would believe and have faith in him. That you would believe in him who he has sent That you believe in Jesus. Believe in what? Believe in his person and believe in his work. What what is his work? What did he do? What belief do we have to have in his work? It's the work of the cross. It's what we celebrated at communion. It's It's the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Precious is the blood of Christ. I love the 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 song, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. Listen to the work of Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this is my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can my sin erase. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Oh, no other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. My faith and my belief is in the power of the blood of Jesus to forgive me of my sins. What must I do? Jesus is saying, believe, believe. And this is what we see all throughout scripture. What does the Bible say in Ephesians chapter two? It says, for by grace you have been saved. Through what? Through climbing the ladder of good works? Through maintaining a state of grace, of righteousness every single day? I I gotta maintain that state of grace. If I fall out of it, then I've gotta atone for it every single day. No, no, no. For by grace we have been saved through Faith, and this is not your own doing, for it is the gift of God, not a result of, you can say it with me, not a result of, if it is a result of works, then we can boast. But there's no boasting in something we never accomplish. There's no, there's no boasting in something we could never pay for. We never paid for it, and, and these these groupies that are following Jesus, and Jesus is getting to their superficial heart, and so the reason why they've Following him, he cuts a little deeper and he's trying to get them to understand that there's nothing they could do to earn 
forgiveness and righteousness, that it's simply in believing in him. He wants them to believe in him. What must we do? Simply believe. I love what 1 Peter 1 says. Knowing that you were ransomed. A ransom is a payment that was paid. When we think of, of redemption, it's a picture of ransom. We were held captive by what? By sin. We were enslaved to sin. We were slaves to sin. But we were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, from the sin of Adam. We inherited a sin nature. And so we were in our futile ways, not with perishable things. We were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or, or, or gold. We couldn't buy our way out of this. There's no amount of money. You, you know, the Reformation, we did a series on the Reformation. You know, I think it was last year. We talked about the indulgences. Martin Luther got upset about the indulgences and said they're trying to sell righteousness before God. We're not, we're, we, we can't buy righteousness with silver or gold. We can't get people out of eternal damnation through, through money that we give. How are we redeemed? With the precious blood of Christ. Oh, precious is the blood. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Nothing more to add to a finished work. Do you believe that? I pray today, I pray today that you be liberated to understand that. If you're a believer here today, be liberated. There's nothing you can add to a finished work. There's nothing more that you can pay for a, for a work that's already been paid for. Suppose you invite some friends over for dinner. It's just hypothetically say you invite some friends over for dinner. Maybe you invite me over for dinner. And you know I like steak. New York strip, cooked medium. So you do it. New York strip with some nice herb, garlic herb butter to finish it off. You cook it just right. You invite your friends. You cook the, the meal. You cook it just the right way. You fix an amazing salad with all the fixings, homemade dressing. You got the croutons. You got, you got all of it, the cheese, everything. And, you, and then you take it to another level. You get the, the baked potato bar out. You bake some potatoes and, and you've got cheese and sour cream and bacon. And then you, then you start making an Arnold Palmer. You get the sweet tea and the lemonade, fresh sweet tea, fresh lemonade. And we sit there and we eat, you and your friends, you eat and you sit back after you're done. And Oh, oh I forgot, forgot, dessert. You bake a pecan pie. You can't forget that. You eat your pecan pie, then you sit back and you drink your coffee. While you're drinking your coffee, you're patting your belly in your food coma. You get up and you're getting ready to go. And as your friends are leaving, as your friends are leaving, he pulls out his wallet. He pulls out his wallet. I thought I had a $20 bill in here. I forgot I spent it. <laughs> I was going to pull out 20 Suppose you, you, you pull out your two $20 bills. Your, your friend's about to walk out the door. And he says, what do I owe you? You're like, no, you don't owe me anything. You don't owe me anything. You know, we, that's not how we do this here. You don't owe me anything. And the guy keeps insisting. So as he's walking out the door, he throws two $20 bills at you. And he walks out the door. That would be offensive, would it not? You would take that money and you would give it back to him. You probably wouldn't invite him back over. This is what we do when we offer to pay or to work for something Jesus has already paid for and finished. That's what it would be like. Hey, hey, Lord. Just a little bit. I know, I, just let me work a little bit harder to show you how good I really am. You can't get saved that way. 
And you can't maintain your salvation that way. It is simply through believing in the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the deity of Christ. That he is a son of God, that he died on the cross for your sins, and that, that you were deserving of the wrath of God, and unless you, by faith, place your faith in his work, you are under the curse and the wrath of God. You can be forgiven. So if you're here today and you're not a believer, and you're trying to throw $20 bills at God, trying to throw your good works at him, I, I came to church today. It's not what God's looking for. He's looking for a heart of faith in him and his work. If you're a believer here today and you're caught into the the old trap that the Reformation dealt with, which is this idea of the state of grace and you can be in it one day and out the next and you got to try to maintain that state of grace through all kind of good works and penance and all of that, Shake yourself free from all of that. Look, at, look what Colossians 2 says. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head, which is Christ from whom the whole body nourished and knit together, holding through through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. As believers, we hold fast to the head, to Christ, to his finished work. So how does this apply to us? Hold fast to Christ and his finished work. Righteousness earned through works is a system that can never tell you when you've done enough. Righteousness that comes through grace and faith is based upon the enough, it is finished work of Christ on the cross. And that's it. Jesus exposes a superficial, false worship of the crowd. And then he exposes the emptiness of works-based righteousness. And now he's pulling them, he's guiding them down this conversation. And the third thing we're going to see this morning is that now Jesus is going to declare that he alone can satisfy you're seeking me for the wrong reasons. You're trying to figure out what you can do to earn, to earn something with me. I'm the only one that can satisfy. Look back at the text. Continue the conversation. Verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it, it was not Moses that, who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, the first of his seven I am statements in John, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you don't believe. You don't believe yet. Jesus is pulling this crowd towards understanding who he is. But they are certainly hard-hearted and hard-headed. They have a tête-dure. So, so they, they said to him, what, what, what were they responding to? They're, they're, they're going to they're, they're, they're say something to him. They were responding. They're about to respond to Jesus exposing their superficial seeking. They're going to respond to him exposing their workspace approach to God. And, and they were responding to Jesus saying the work that God approves is belief in me. 
So what did they say in response to all of that? Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? You want us to believe in you? What sign do you do? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the manna in the wilderness. He gave them bread from heaven. You know, sometimes you read the Bible and you step back and you think, are you serious? You push back and you think, are these people for real? You ever felt that way? You should feel that way right now. What sign do you perform that we may believe in you? Did they just have like, when they went to sleep the night, that night before, did they wake up with amnesia? Did they just forget that Jesus fed a crowd of probably 20,000 people of fish and bread, five loaves and two fish? He performed this amazing miracle. They're going to look at him as he's pressing them to the reality that they must believe in him and who he is. They said, okay, we'll believe in you, but you need to perform a sign. What are they doing? You know what they're doing? They're saying, okay, you performed a sign. What they're doing is they're they're doing what the woman at the well did in John 4. When Jesus starts pressing her and tells her what what she's done and who she is, what does she say? She said, I perceive you're a prophet. And what does she start saying? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Where do you say we should worship? She starts comparing Christ with her fathers. What are they doing here? They start comparison, comparison, comparing Jesus and Moses. They start the comparison game with Jesus. What sign of work do you perform? Our fathers ate bread also for 40 years. They say he gave them bread from heaven. Who is the he? Moses. They're saying Moses gave us bread from heaven. So in essence, what they're saying to Jesus is we'll believe you if you outperform Moses. Moses fed the whole nation for 40 years. You fed 10,000 people one meal. You're not greater than Moses yet, so we're good. That, that, that's what's happening right here. What sign do you do? Clearly, they didn't forget the sign. But they're comparing Jesus to Moses. They said, you, you haven't done enough yet. You need to prove yourself. So what does Jesus say in response? Oh, it gets really good. It's going to get good next Sunday. Just wait. But it's getting really good. Jesus, I, Jesus is the best responder to crazy questions and crazy statements. Truly, truly. Okay, now he's, he's going to talk to him again. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Wow. <laughs> he says, that's not even true bread. It was not Moses who did it. It was God, and it's not even true bread. It's temporary bread. For the bread of God, the bread of God, the true bread that God gives is he. It's a person who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, okay, give us this bread always. We'll take it. Sign us up. Jesus is saying to them, the manna got old. The manna spoiled. Do you remember the restriction that God gave them with the manna? Don't save over any for the next day or it's going to spoil. So the manna would spoil. But Jesus is saying the bread, the true bread from God that God is giving gives eternal satisfaction. It gives eternal life. Sir. Give us this bread always. Okay. Okay. I fed you and you follow me. But you don't believe yet. Your heart's only after, your belly's only after breakfast. Okay. I'm, I'm moving you down this trail here. I'm telling you, there's some eternal bread you can have. Okay. You want the bread always? Okay. I am the bread of life. 
It's me. I am the eternal bread that can truly satisfy your deepest needs. I am. They're not interested in it yet. And we're going to see next week, they don't want the eternal bread of life. They don't want this reality of believing. And what Jesus is saying when he's saying, I am, it, it literally means it's the eternal God that gives eternal life. It's the I am statement of God. It's I am the eternal God who gives eternal life. Come to me, believe, and you will never hunger or thirst. And they were not ready for that. Jesus alone can satisfy, and this is what he's trying to get them to see. He alone can satisfy our deep spiritual needs. And only Jesus can fill the God-shaped hole in the heart of man. The prophet Isaiah, we, Pastor Shane read it after the time of music, Isaiah 55. The prophet Isaiah speaks forward concerning Christ, the bread of life. Listen to what he says there. You heard it earlier. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. You can't pay for this. You can't pay for it. You can't throw $20 bills at it, right? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? You're spending money to earn righteousness and it will not satisfy you. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen, this is what Jesus is saying to them. He's saying, listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Jesus to the rich young ruler, why do you call me good? No one is good. Jesus is the perfect good. Listen to what is good. Listen diligently to me, to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Jesus is declaring to them that he is the true satisfaction. And so my 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 call to all of us here today is that we would we would see that as true that Christ truly is the only one who satisfies the only one who satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf and the only one who can meet the deepest spiritual needs of our heart satisfied satisfied content we need to be content and satisfied with Christ I know some of you when you were kids you you wanted a bike you know, it's one of the first things you, you learn to do when you get to be four or five years old. You ride a bike. You guys ever, is that, is that what you did? Yeah, and you get out there and your parents help you with the bike. And you've been waiting for your bike. Maybe if your parents were, 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 were trying to teach you a lesson about hard work and earning things, they said, okay, well, you're going to earn this bike. And so you worked hard and, and you worked diligently and, and you, you did extra chores and you folded the clothes and washed the dishes and, and you, you mowed the lawn and you worked hard for that new bike that you were waiting on. You worked and you worked and you got it and you finally got it and you get out there and you get this new bike. You're riding in the neighborhood and then you go, you go two days later down the neighborhood showing off your nice bike and there's the neighborhood friend that rides out with his new bike that he got for Christmas. And you're like, you don't want to show it, but you're like, oh man, man, I wish I'd have got that bike because his is the newest, the biggest, the greatest model. You got one that was a little bit cheaper. He got the new nice one. And all of a sudden, you switch from being content and satisfied to being jealous and not satisfied. Jesus alone can satisfy. May we be content with who he is and what he's done. 
So some questions to ask ourselves. How does this apply to us when we're thinking about Christ alone satisfying? Here's some questions to ask ourselves. What are we placing our hope in? What are we placing our hope in? Is it in all of our temporary earthly needs being met and fulfilled? What are we looking to for joy? Is it, is it the right relationships? And are, we looking to joy for, are we looking to people for joy? Circumstances for joy? The new job, pay raise, we're looking to those things for joy. Here's another question. Are we running the never-ending race of chasing earthbound satisfaction? It's such, a, it's such a tiring race, running that race, chasing earthbound satisfaction. We'll say things like this, if, if I only had, or if I only experienced it, if I only did this, or I only accomplished that, if I only, if I only, if I only. I love what C.S. Lewis says about that mindset. He says, I cannot find a cup of tea which is big enough or a book that is long enough. In essence, what he's saying there is there's nothing on this earth that can truly satisfy. Only Christ can truly satisfy our deepest need. And I want to tell you that there's nothing in this world that is going to point you towards that. There's nothing apart from the gospel that will point you towards that. The world will point all of us to place our hope and our affection to find joy in this temporary life. It is the race that we are pressed on and pushed to pursue with our time and with our money and with our resources. And Christ is calling these people here in John 6 and he's calling us today to not buy into the rat race. That earth, that earthbound things can truly, ultimately satisfy us. Only Christ can satisfy us. I want to look at the conclusion. We're going to look at verses 40 real quickly. Verses 37 through 40. We're going to look at the concluding words before the conversation shifts Next week. Look, look, look at verse 37. It says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. I love what's said in this text. Listen to this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. God's the one who saves. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. The Lord saves and the Lord keeps I love this, and I will lose nothing that has been given to me. Isn't that good news? When the Lord saves us, he keeps us, he sustains us, and we are his forever. Okay, now notice verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Looks on the Son. So I believe what Jesus is saying here. He's saying this. You want to talk about Moses? You want to compare me and Moses? You want to, you want to compare me and try to say, well, I'm not, I haven't done enough to show you that I'm worthy of your worship, that, to, that, that I haven't proved myself to you enough to believe in who I really am? Let's talk about Moses again. Let's, here's another example. Here's another comparison. Everyone who looks on the sun and believes will have eternal life. The crowd was saying here, we want to talk about the bread and the manna that Moses gave us. 
And Jesus, I believe, in this verse 40, he says, okay, I want to bring you back to Moses. And I want to tell you that whoever looks on the Son will be saved and will live. No doubt, they understood what he meant when he said, whoever looks. Do you remember what happened with Moses and the children of Israel in Numbers chapter 21? They want to talk about Moses. Jesus says, okay, I'll tell you, Moses. Numbers 21, four, starting verse 4. And the people became impatient on the way. God kept giving them food and manna and quail. And he fed them and they grumbled and they complained. They became impatient and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and water and we loathe this worthless food. You want to talk about Moses? I'm talking about bread. I want to talk about me. I want to talk about you got to look to me, all who look to the sun. So what happened in Numbers 21? They complained, were tired of this worthless food. God judged them. And they started getting bit by snakes, by serpents. They started dying because of the judgment of God on them. Because they complained against God. And God instructs Moses, create a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. Verse 8, when the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. When he sees it, when he looks on it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look and would live. This is what Jesus is saying. Look to me. Don't look to me for earthly temporary satisfaction. Don't look to me as trying to give you a means of how you can work for righteousness. Look to me and believe. So the question for all of us today as we conclude this morning is would you look to Jesus today and truly live? Maybe you're here today and you've never looked to Jesus truly in faith and you are not living. You truly are spiritually dead. Today the call is to look to Jesus and truly live. If you're a believer here today, would you truly see him as all you need? Not just a celebrity who elevates my status. I'm not just a groupie following the noise and the crowd. Would we look to Jesus and truly live? Simply put, where we started, Jesus alone truly satisfies. And all other approaches to find fulfillment are superficial and temporary. Do you believe that? Jesus alone truly satisfies. Would you bow your heads and pray with us today? Isn't it amazing that God would compare Cajun food with himself, delight ourselves in rich food? That is our God. We love you, God. We thank you that you are the bread of life. You are the rich food that we need. Thank you, God, for eternal life. For those that are stirred up in their hearts this morning, God, I pray that they would turn towards you. They would turn to you and live. That they would taste of that bread which gives eternal life. Help us as your people, Lord, to go out this week and to live for you, to delight in you, to glorify you in everything that we do. 
We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys.